Hi, Dr. Siegel. Hi. So, um, it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, you talk a lot about the mind. So, maybe could you start with telling us a little bit about how you view the mind? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me in this interview forum. Uh, it's an honor for me. And, you know, this question about the mind is so central to what every psychotherapist actually does. And being trained myself uh, in psychiatry and uh, being immersed in different forms of therapy like family therapy or couples work or working in the setting of psychodynamic therapy or thinking more along the lines of evaluation, all those ways I was trained, I was kind of struck by how we never actually talked about the mind. And uh, in my own background, when I was a research fellow working with different scientists, we formed a group together for five years studying the relationship between the mind and the brain. And that period in the beginning of the decade of the brain was really a wonderful time as a therapist to think, what is the mind? And what was shocking to me to find in the last eight or years or so was this very strange statistic, which is of 75,000 therapists I've asked face-to-face, only about 2 to 5% have ever had even one lecture defining what the mind is. Wow. And that's across the board. That's psychiatry, psychology, social work, psychiatric nursing, uh, body uh, therapists, art therapists, music therapists, across the board. It was really shocking. And I continue to ask the question because I'm hoping there'll be some group where that's not true, but it hasn't been the case. So over 95% of us, me included, uh, never had a lecture defining what the mind is. You can ask these mental health practitioners of all these different disciplines the same question about mental health, and you find the same percentage, that about 95% or more of people in the mental health field have never had even one lecture defining mental health. So we're in a very strange period, of course, where, yes, we're trained in psychiatric diseases and psychological suffering. Yes, we're trained in methods to try to alleviate suffering. But there isn't a commonly viewed or even any viewed uh, perspective for 95% of us on a mind, let alone a healthy mind. Yeah, on what it is that we're trying to do, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, as a psychotherapist, the psyche is defined as the soul, the spirit, uh, the intellect, and the mind. And then in the Webster's Dictionary, it goes on to define the mind as a subjectively experienced entity which is based ultimately upon physical processes, but it has processes, processes of its own. So I'll offer you a working definition of the mind that uh, was useful for this group of over 40 scientists a year ago. And it's been useful ever since. So I've been using it for now about uh, 16 years. And it's been helpful because since none of our fields have a definition of the mind, it's a working definition that all of us from the various aspects of psychotherapy can actually join together. Uh, And here's the definition. And it's a working definition, so it's a work in progress, but this one has been quite useful over these many years. And it goes like this, that the, the mind can be defined as a relational and an embodied process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So within this definition, 
and we could look at why different scientists all agreed upon it. But within this definition for us as therapists, we have a couple of very key features. One is that it's relational mm -hmm. and it's embodied. So it happens like between me and you now, between us, the two of us, and the people who may listen to this interview. It happens in our relationships with each other, and that's the relational part of the mind. But it also happens as energy and information flows, not just between people and relationships, but within the body itself. So you might focus on, for example, the nervous system distributed throughout the whole body, and sometimes I just abbreviate that with the word brain, but we're, we're looking really at energy and information flow that happens throughout the entire body, not just in the tissue that's in the skull. So the embodied part of this definition means that energy and information are flowing throughout the body. Now, let's look at what energy and information flow means. The word flow means that something is changing over time, like a river passing by a particular place, water is flowing by. In the case of the flow of the mind, we're talking about energy and information, and energy is the physical property of energy. It's not a mystical, confusing, you know, nondescript term. It's actually what we mean like the difference if I say, all right, let's talk about the mind, or let's talk about the mind. You can feel the different amount of energy in the amplification of what's flowing there in those two examples. Yeah. Information is something that's defined in science as a way that we represent something other than itself. So if you were holding a rock in your hand, the rock would have a lot of data, a lot of aspects to it you could measure, but there's no information in the rock because the rock is just the rock. Mm -hmm. But if you and I talk about the word rock, that's information because R-O-C-K and the sound rock you know, that is not the rock itself. So it is a representation of something other than itself. And we can share, then, that informational representation, uh, and that's a part of what the mind regulates. So in, in large part, we can look at a triangle of human experience and say there's at least three aspects to this triangle. One is the mind, this regulatory process that's regulating energy and information flow. Mm -hmm. There's relationships, and that's the way we share energy and information flow. And then a physiological mechanism, if you will, would be the body, or the body-brain, however you want to say it. Uh, and this body-brain, then, is a mechanism, physiological mechanism, by which energy and information flows. So in this triangle, I think as therapists, we're always working with the three components of the triangle of human experience. And in a moment, we can discuss, if you'd like, you know, if that's the mind, you know, what's a healthy mind? Right. But that's so I want to, I want to, uh, that's obviously uh, something that's very, uh, very, very crucial importance in our practice, but I want to stay for a moment in what you just described. And in the definition you gave, uh, certainly part of it is, um, defining the mind as a process as opposed to an entity or a thing. Absolutely. Uh, so in that sense, going very much from the part that's still ingrained with us to some extent in language about uh, words like psyche or soul or spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, 
that it is embodied and it's it's uh, so you know the the two the two things can be can seem a little bit you know feel logical when you describe it the way you do but they go at cross purposes to the understanding that we have ingrained through uh, generations of um, past thinking you know i think that's a really really important way you're describing that because we do think of the mind as a noun rather than a verb mm-hmm. um, and that use of linguistic categorization like the mind is a noun an entity rather than a process it gets us into a lot of trouble uh, because this is a fluid dynamic moving process um, and when you really see it that way all sorts of windows open up as opportunities to help people transform the process that is the mind mm-hmm. um, and rather than being fixed uh, in a notion that the mind is like an object when you see it as a verb as a process you can actually work with it in a much more effective manner so that uh, that in a way would lead us to the other part of the question of the mental health yeah. because that you're talking about um, mental health as transforming the processes of the mind yes yeah you know and this is a a, a, a subject that can take you know an 8 hour lecture for everyone to have fun and talk about clinical examples and then get into it. So in a short interview like this, I mean, I'll give you what I think is the outcome of an eight-hour discussion like that. But if it feels like, God, that's pretty abstract or I don't really believe that or whatever, what I suggest is either, you know, you read the books that are available in our series on interpersonal neurobiology or uh, certainly we have a lot of um, recordings uh, on the neurobiology of well-being and all that kind of stuff that are available. So I'll give you uh, a, a... touch lightly on the journey to get there, and then I'll give you the, the, uh, the punchline of the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's how it goes. When I was writing a book called The Developing Mind, um, I was working in a field called attachment, which looks at how the relationships between parents and their children help children develop resilience and ultimately uh, move them toward well-being. So attachment isn't everything, but it is thought to be a very important part of the experiences that help shape the way a child's mind develops. So in this book, The Developing Mind, I was trying to summarize all the major areas of science, uh, for example, about memory or narrative or attachment. And when I got to the um, chapter on emotion uh, and wanted to summarize for the reader, you know, what makes for healthy emotional communication, I thought it would be important to look into, well, what is emotion? So I started looking at the science of emotion and, you know, reading the, uh, the research studies of these scientists who are actually spending their lives studying this process called emotion. Well, the first thing is there was no shared definition of what emotion is. Mm-hmm. So that was a little startling. It is. Uh, and if you, <laughs> if you actually sit down with 100 therapists, you'll probably find about 99 definitions of emotion. Uh, and, and I've had the opportunity to do this, and you find that no one seems to agree, and yet everyone knows sort of what an emotion is, but when they're asked to articulate, they, they have a hard time, as I, I do too. So I had to finish this book, and i got to say, my wife was understandably very frustrated because this book was going on and on and on in the writing of it. And as a matter of marital emergency, I, I said, how can I write a chapter on emotion and finish this book if I don't, find a way of summarizing what the scientists are sharing as a view of emotion. 
So suddenly what began to become apparent in the writing of these scientists, not so much what they were saying directly, but they, what they would kind of say almost parenthetically, mm -hmm. was something that was shared in common. And when you find that, it's called consilience, a, a, a parallel finding from independent approaches. Mm -hmm. So the consilient finding that came up was the concept of integration. And integration is defined very, very specifically as the linkage of differentiated components of a system, the linkage of different parts. So, for example, a, an attachment researcher might say, you know, emotion and emotional communication are important development because it links the child across her various stages of development. Mm -hmm. uh, or a relational therapist looking at attachment or even family functioning might say, emotion is the glue that links different people to each other. Or, uh, let's say, a biological psychologist uh, or a neuroscientist might say, emotion is that which connects bodily processes to the processes of the brain. Or you might have um, people just in everyday use would say, you know, um, I'm really feeling emotionally close to my best friend. And you'd find that their two minds are linked. Differentiated people are linked to each other. So to me, it, it, the question in my mind that was raised as a response to this issue of what is emotion is, could it be that the word, the English word emotion, is actually referring not to a noun, but to another, a process of verb, mm -hmm. like the mind. Mm -hmm. In this case, that is the process of integration, the linkage of differentiated components. So what I started to do in my own mind was to um, transfer, or I guess transpose, every time my own head or word, mouth, wanted to use the word emotion, I'd switched it for integration. And what I found was I could do a lot more effective work with patients, with clients, if I did that. And then in my teaching of, with students, I offered them this idea that this word emotion was kind of useless because we didn't have a shared definition of it. And every time they wanted to use the word emotion, let's try to exchange it for the word and concept of integration. And they too found it extremely useful. So what that brought up was the notion that if integration, this linkage of differentiated parts, mm -hmm. is in fact what emotion is, then what's emotional well-being? And then the idea was, well, emotional well-being then is an integrated system. And then I looked to find that if in, an integrated system is a healthy system, is there any form of science that says that's true? And the one branch of science that actually says that is a strange branch of mathematics called probability theory. And within probability theory, it's a, a kind of approach called complexity theory. Mm. And basically, the, the shorthand summary of all that is that when a system is capable of chaotic behavior and open, like a cloud or a mind or a relationship or a brain, those are all examples of complex mm -hmm. systems, they move in a self-organizational flow towards something called maximizing complexity. Well, that's pretty abstract, and the take-home message is that when it's moving in this flow in this particular direction, it's the most flexible, adaptive, energized, and stable. It has a sense of coherency to it, and all those spell the word faces, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. So you have this faces flow, which to me, even though it's from mathematics, was the best definition of well-being I had ever seen. 
Well, so then that theory says that when the system is not moving toward maximizing complexity, uh, which, by the way, is achieved, here's the answer, when a system's integrated, when you allow the components of a system to become differentiated, and then you link them, that's how you maximize complexity. That's how you get the faces flow. So there, for the first time, was a, a scientific grounding for why integration was a good thing. And then the theory predicts that when a system is not integrated, it moves to one of two directions. It moves either toward chaos or it moves toward rigidity, or both. Mm. So I wanted to relate this to the yes. definition you were giving about the mind. And yep. you were saying it's a relational and embodied process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Yes. And the word I'm uh, relating to is regulates. Yeah. And yep. so that seems very related to that sense of um, what you're describing right now, that the optimal flow uh, comes in that uh, state that you're describing. Exactly. So that the regulation of the mind could be the equivalent in mathematics of self-organization of a complex system. Now, if that's true, then let's take body therapy, for example. You could make an argument that for health to occur, or let's say an unresolved trauma, for healing to occur, um, the differentiated information flow that happens, let's say, in the muscles, or happens uh, around the neural networks around the intestine, or around the neural networks uh, around the heart, so the viscera, those hollow organs, or the musculoskeletal system, those are just two broad examples of information flow that must be integrated with the brainstem processes related to fight, flight, and freeze reactions. Mm -hmm. The limbic area of the brain involved with appraisal of meaning and the creation of affect, as well as relationships. And then the cortical processing that can happen within self-understanding, as well as just plain old awareness. So in body therapy-based approaches, you could say what we're doing is we're allowing cortical awareness to invite the information processing of the differentiated parts of the lower parts of the brain, like limbic and uh, brainstem areas, mm -hmm. and the extensive information processing that we know exists in the body proper. And you bring all of these together, you, that is, you link within awareness these differentiated information streams in awareness, and that's what leads to healing. Mm -hmm. And that's where integration becomes our central feature, not just in defining emotion, but in actually defining a healthy system. Yeah, so the very, very, very powerful, and actually to, to almost risk a pun, there's something very uh, healing about that sense of um, integration. Uh, if you think that in the language we use uh, the concept of wholeness, the concept of uh, you know integrating the parts, yeah. uh, that is an intuition that people have that you're coming out you know through this uh, neurobiological road. Absolutely, you know this interpersonal neurobiology approach, which is basically what I'm summarizing for you, you know, I think fits with a lot of clinicians' intuition that they had long before these sciences were available. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing is that so many different strategies, body therapy, psychodynamic therapy, EMDR, all sorts of work, narrative therapy, all sorts of work finds a home within interpersonal neurobiology because we're not trying to propose a new way of doing therapy, although there's a therapy uh, approach that comes from it. Mm -hmm. It's more the idea of can we work together 
can we collaborate together in defining the mind, defining a healthy mind, and then seeing how all these different approaches are useful in their own way, sometimes for different problems, sometimes for different types of people, sometimes for different therapists. Um, and yet they all, I believe, are working when they work because they promote integration. Yeah. And, and here's just one thing I'll just say. Mm-hmm. You can make an argument that in therapy, effective therapy must not only promote integration, but as it does that, it's actually promoting the growth of new neural connections in the nervous system that are integrative. So you're expanding on the notion of the plastic mind. In the the plastic mind, exactly. And and the field of neuroplasticity, that is how the brain itself actually changed in response to experience, is the bread and butter of psychotherapy because we are using our relationships and the focus of attention, for example, on the body, to create states of activation of neural firing for ourselves and the client that then lead to neural firing patterns that are new and then lead to growth of synaptic connections that are integrative. That's what I believe therapies do when they work well. I think you made the point uh, that some of the the processing, the area of the brain where uh, this... uh, integration is processed is similar, the attachment is processed is similar to the area where emotions and value uh, meanings are processed. Yes, yeah. If you look at um, that area, let's say, of attachment research and compare it to, let's say, uh, brain research um, and then look at an independent field, for example, of mindful awareness, this, um, this whole ancient practice of being aware of what's happening in the moment and letting go of the grasping that we all naturally do onto judgments and expectations, that way of being in the moment. Um, those three areas, attachment, that is parent-child attachment, and healthy relationships in general, brain research, and mindful awareness, all point to these meaning-making, self-understanding, regulatory circuits of the brain being involved. And in many ways, You know, I think what we do in uh, therapy is help people find a way of relating to themselves in a healthy manner. They, in a sense, with mindful awareness, become their own best friend. Mm -hmm. And, for example, if you've had someone who's had an impairment, there are these domains of integration we talk about, and one would be vertical integration. If you've had someone who's been living above their shoulders and not aware of their bodily processes, you know, that's an impairment in vertical integration, they're having a very constricted life because of that. Mental health will be constricted. So they may be prone to chaos or rigidity or both. And in fact, when you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry, the DSM, you know, it is chock full of um, examples of chaos, rigidity, or both, these times when you're not in an integrated state. But for vertical integration, the impairment would be directly dealt with in body therapy because you'd be inviting someone to bring the important information streams of the body, musculoskeletal, visceral, upward, into the brainstem and limbic areas, and then ultimately integrated within especially the right hemisphere. But the frontmost part of the cortex is called the prefrontal cortex, and that's where you take the registration of all this bodily information and integrate it, literally integrate it with linking it with other areas like self-understanding, memory, empathy, all these processes that seem to be promoted in secure attachment, mindful awareness, and even effective psychotherapy. 
So in a way, when as a body-oriented psychotherapist you observe somebody's arms or legs or facial expressions or body language, you are in the process of observing some side effects of this process, uh, this processing Absolutely. that occurs. You know, right, and they may, you know, you may get a feeling as a body therapist, yet this person's just, as, as um, I think it was uh, James Joyce once said, you know, uh, Mr. Duffy uh, lived uh, a short distance from his body. You know, <laughs> this idea that people do live far away from the bodies that they inhabit. And a lot of that can happen because of trauma. You know, as you know, you know that you, you, if your body has been invaded, uh, it's a way of protecting yourself from those memories and even from the actual experience to disconnect yourself from that information stream uh, and then live a life. As one of my patients once said, you know, his life was so fraught with pain in the body that he made a decision just to never feel his body again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in many ways, when you look at the difference between left hemisphere and right hemisphere, the right has an integrated map of the whole body, very somatic and affective and relational, whereas the left is very logical, liter literal and linear and linguistic. So if you're really going to escape the body, probably what you're doing in part is, is leaning much more on the left of dominating your awareness with left hemisphere processes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, as we're talking about these differences and in integration, uh, when you write about parenting from the inside out and you write about the, how parents can help children get a more positive development, but also you, more, in a more general way, emphasize collaborative processes a lot. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think one of the lessons of the, the textbook, The Developing Mind, was that just what you're saying, collaboration, which is a form of interpersonal integration, collaboration is really at the heart of healthy relationships. So in the book, uh, Parenting from the Inside Out, um, there's a translation of the developing mind for parents uh, to actually help them understand themselves and become more integrated themselves because that's what the research shows actually the best predictor that then they will engage in these collaborative, respectful, compassionate relationships that promote resilience in children. So it's a book actually designed to allow the reader, the parent, to go through it page by page and to promote integration in their own brains. That's how we wrote it. Yeah. And, uh, and that, you know, collaboration is really uh, a process where you're not just um, sending back the same signal but there is some kind of a processing that has occurred. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, some people think of the word mirroring, especially these days with the mirror neurons and everything, and they think mirroring is the key, and it's actually not the key, because mirroring would be just being like a Xerox machine where you just make a copy of what you're seeing and send it back like a mirror. <laughs> um, collaboration is more the idea of contingency. That is, I'm going to receive what you send, I'm going to make sense of it in my own mind, so you exist inside of my head. But what I then get back to you as a response, as part of you and part of me, you're not just getting a mirroring back. You're, we are going forward because I've integrated what you've said into who I am and brought it back to you. So if you just look at the definition of integration, it's 
the linkage of differentiated parts. Mm -hmm. It isn't just the linkage of identical parts or the mirroring back of identical responses. You need differentiated people. I need to be different from you. Or in a family, you know, the individual differences need to be honored, and then they can be linked. If those differences are not honored, you can have all the linkage in the world, but without differentiation, you don't have integration. You just have fusion. Fusion as opposed yeah. to integration, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes people hear the word integration, and they think it's the same thing as becoming homogenous. Mm -hmm. And it's just the opposite. It's where you have a heterogeneous cluster of parts, like people in a family, who can respect each other's differences and then link. It's just like in, in one's own individual life. You can respect that you have a need to be immersed in your body, you have a need to be immersed in relationships, a need to be immersed in you know, abstract thinking or you know all these different things that we do. And you never, uh, I shouldn't say never, but the idea is not to try to um, make it all the same. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm just one, one continuous flow of the sameness. Not at all. We are made of heterogeneous parts, of mixed parts, and that's the essence of integration is to honor those differences and then link them together. It's the opposite of being a reductionist. Exactly. Yeah, you embrace all of the multiplicity of everything. So I wanted to, uh, as we're approaching the end, I wanted to see if there is uh, something that you would like to uh, suggest therapists who are listening to, to us. Yeah, well, you know, if, if this is of interest to you, there's um, a nonprofit organization called GAINS, the Global Association for Interpersonal Neurobiology Studies, and they have a wonderful uh, newsletter that comes out a couple times a year, and they're at mindgains.org. Um, and we have a whole series of books, if this is of interest to you, mm -hmm. through Norton, the Interpersonal Neurobiology Series. And then there's all these um, you know, educational programs if you go to the mindsightinstitute.com. Uh, that, that's our, our school, and we have all these educational programs because what we're finding is that many um, therapists of different persuasions um, are finding a common home in this field, this interpersonal neurobiology field. So we're very excited to offer the science and art of therapy uh, for people of various backgrounds so that we can actually collaborate in defining the mind, defining mental health, and actually outlining ways of promoting these various domains of integration. And so it's a, I think it's a very exciting time to be in psychotherapy, working together to try to help this world be a, a better place. Well, certainly uh, you, you have succeeded in sharing some of this enthusiasm. But uh, before closing, actually, I wanted to ask you to say a few words about mindsight. It's an unusual word. And, uh, oh, mindsight, yeah. Well, you know, in, in looking at all these processes head on, um, it's, uh, it became apparent that we didn't have a word in English for one of the most uh, central aspects of healthy relationships and even healthy in intrapersonal functioning, and that is the ability to see the mind itself. So we have a word for seeing someone else's mind. We call it empathy. We have a word even for um, thinking about your own mind. We call it self-understanding or insight. So mindsight is the word that says... What is the process, like a perceptual process, by which we see the mind of others and of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Mindsight Institute, the school we have, is really about promoting self-understanding, that insight that has been shown to be the most helpful for helping relationships grow and thrive. 
as well as empathy, which is really what our world needs so desperately now, compassion and empathy. And so Mindsight it clusters those two together and says, you know, we can work collaboratively um, in mental health, in the field of education, to inform public policy and legislation and also just to help people in the general public understand that, in fact, we can make this world an improved, more compassionate place where we widen these circles of compassion for each other and really help promote well-being. Wonderful. This is a great message for the new year. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.